0: Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, which can also be found on page 8 of your bulletin. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sillas of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice, tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah, they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. This is God's word.
1: For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Genesis, particularly the life of of Abraham, the three major World religions look to Abraham as a father of their faith, so we need to study Abraham. We need to study Abraham, and we've been saying that the Bible is not a collection of uh, a loose collection of stories teaching us morals and how to live a good life, but it's a single story. We need to plug into this story because it teaches us how we came about, who we are, how the world became broken, what God is doing in this world and how this incredible story, this single story, comes to an end. Now, Abraham was called out of his religious, cultural, social, economic context. He lived a remarkable life. He lived a big life. How did he live such a big life? And the Bible teaches us that he lived on the basis of a call, a promise. God appeared to him, promised him, that one day he would redeem the entire world, the brokenness of the world, through a son born of Abraham's seed. And for 25 years, Abraham's now 100 years old. Sarah, his wife, is 90 years old. For, for 25 years, he's been living on the basis in accordance with that promise. How did he do that? How did Abraham do that for 25 years? And it's because he was intimate with God. God. God appeared to him. God called him. God became personal, radically personal to him. He tied his own identity, he tied his own uh, character, his own life to fulfilling this promise that he made to Abraham. Now, why did the author then include this passage? Because it's really the same message. What's so important about about this text? And I want to submit to you that although it's the same message, we need to hear. We need to hear this lesson, this message today. We need to make it new in our lives. Here's Abraham. He's by the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day and he sees three men. He doesn't see a smoking fire pot. He doesn't see a blazing torch like we learned last week. But God comes to him as a visitor. And we're going to learn three things about this visit. God's intent in the visit. Sarah's laughter and our hope. The intent the laughter, our hope. First, <clears throat> God's intent. What's the intent of all this? And we see this in the first nine verses. Abraham, he sees three men, three visitors, and instantly when he sees them in verse 2, he says he bows down, he bows low, and he starts this initial conversation. Uh, we're gonna, I'm just going to read verses 3 to 4. He says, uh, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Throughout this text, the first nine verses, three times he uses the word hurry, quick. And and four times he uses the word fetch in Hebrew. What's he doing? What's Abraham doing here? It's an unexpected visit. But what Abraham is doing is he's demonstrating um, the exemplary characteristics of Bedouin culture, the culture of his day, the desert culture, hospitality to strangers. Because it was desert culture. If you didn't show hospitality... It's very well likely that these visitors would have died. And so he's, uh, he's demonstrated exemplary hospitality toward these strangers. Now, there's no indication in any way, shape, or form that he ever met these people before. And likewise, there's no indication that these people ever knew Sarah before. The first nine verses, there's no indication that Abraham even knew that it was God that was talking until we get to verse 10. One of them speaks, and it dawns on Abraham. This is the Lord. Chapter 17, God promises a son through whom the entire nation would be built, his nation, where a savior would be born to redeem everything that's broken in the world. Everything will be broken and everything will be redeemed by God through this son. Now, Abraham's 100 years old. He's clinging to this promise. He's trying to convince Sarah of this promise, about this promise. But but most likely, they didn't share about this promise to anybody else. Why? I mean, why didn't they share? For 25 years, they knew the promise. Sarah, she heard the promise through Abraham. But most likely, they didn't share this promise with anybody. Why? Probably because it was too remarkable, too incredible, almost ridiculous. Abraham's 100 years old. He still doesn't have a son. Sarah, 90 years old and barren. It's too ridiculous. And so, the only person who could have really known this promise is the person who made it. And here, when this visitor starts to repeat the promise, Abraham probably realized he would have known that this is the Lord. And here's the key. This time, they didn't come for Abraham. They asked for Sarah. Sarah. Why did they ask for Sarah? In chapter 15, God appears before Abraham in a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, but he never visited Sarah personally. And this time when he visits, his approach to Sarah is very, very different from his approach to Abraham. For example, uh, God visits Abraham a few times, several times in the 25 years of Abraham's waiting. But here he promises to visit Sarah twice in one year. He visits Abraham in dread, in the terror, in the darkness. But here he visits Sarah at noon, at the brightest time of the day. To Abraham he comes, how? Smoking fire pot, blazing torch. But to Sarah, on foot, as a visitor, in person. To Abraham he comes with a contract, a covenant to Sarah. He's counseling Sarah in this passage. He just comes with questions. Why are the two approaches? Abraham is a businessman in a merchant culture. He's a patriarch. In Genesis 15, when God told him, I want you to get these animals, Abraham knew exactly what to do. He cuts these animals from head to toe, and he lays them opposite, because he understands the nature of contracts in his day. But Sarah is this lowly, barren, old woman. She's got no social currency, no social capital. And, and this is what we learn about God in this text. Sometimes God comes in a fire. Sometimes he comes uh, in a blazing torch. And other times he comes as a counselor. Sometimes he comes to businessmen, the patriarchs, the high order society. But other times he never leaves out the barren. He never leaves out the marginalized. He never leaves out the lowly part of the social ladder. They came for Sarah, this text says. And in verse 9, when they asked, where is your wife Sarah? It's not like they didn't know where Sarah was. They knew. But why did they ask and why did they say that? It's because they wanted her attention. Why? Verse 10, she was eavesdropping. She was inside the tent and she was listening, it says. Sarah's an old woman by now. She's 90 years old. And uh, verses 11 to 12, she hears this news and it says that she laughs. Why does she laugh? She says, you know, will I have this pleasure? Will I now have this pleasure? And we think that what she's saying is, will I have this pleasure of having a son in my old age? But really the Hebrew word Edna in this text is a cognate of the word Eden. How are they in Eden? They were naked. They were naked in Eden. She wasn't referring to having just the pleasure of a child in this text. What she's saying is she's referring to sexual pleasure. In other words, what she's saying is we're so old, we're so old, we're not even having sex anymore. Abraham probably hasn't touched her in years. In fact, in many ways, she was probably so disappointed because in that patriarchal society, the blessing of a son was a social currency. It was also economic currency. You had hired, you didn't need hired hands. You had sons. It was the, the ultimate in terms of passing on your lineage, and it was the marker of this promise, and yet he was so disappointed probably. Decades passing with no children, no son, deeply disappointed. Marriage probably lacked a lot of intimacy. Here's Sarah. She's a woman, so already in the culture of her day, no rights. No rights. She's old. She's, she's about 90 years old, so she's way past that age where beauty is relevant, where physical beauty is really relevant. She's barren in a culture that exalts beauty and exalts fertility. We're way beyond that in this culture, right? Right? Sarah's forgotten. Sarah's abandoned. She's left alone. She doesn't even come out of the tent. She's just listening in. Yet God travels through the desert heat and seeks her out directly on foot and speaks to her. He could have appeared before her in a blazing torch, in a smoking fire pot, but he walks to her on foot to bring her the promise, to bring Sarah the promise. And from this, we're going to learn a few things. One, God seeks out the marginalized. God seeks out the outcast. You know, the marginalized, they don't have a way in. Sarah didn't even come out of the tent in many ways, but God spoke to her. God sought her out directly, and that means that Sarah has a place. And if a person like Sarah, who's got no social capital, no social currency, no no children, no social standing, if she can have a place with God, it means everybody can have a place with God. It means everybody's got a chance to have a place with God. God waits until Sarah has nothing to bring to the table so that nothing short of God's own grace alone can fulfill the promise. And the essence of the gospel is this. You don't connect with God because you are able. How do you know that? Look at Sarah. She's not able. She's not able to have children. Next, why does God come? Abraham had a personal experience with God, but Sarah needed her own personal experience with God. She heard the message many times from Abraham, but she laughed here in this text. Why? Abraham's experience wasn't as personal to her. It wasn't as real to her. She needed her own experience. And what does that mean? It's not enough to take on someone else's experience of faith in God. You know, if you find yourself, you know, I've heard this before. I've already heard this before. What you're really saying is what was personal to this person what, this pers- what was personal to what this person is sharing is not that personal to me. What was real to this person, what was radically transforming to this person was not, is not as radically transforming to me. You never rely on someone else's experience. You need a personal experience yourself. Next, someone, sometimes God comes in a pickaxe, in a blazing torch. Other times, over a process, over years, over a lunchtime conversation, now, there are core foundational similarities in both experiences. In a Christian experience, you have to believe that you're a sinner. You have to believe that salvation is only by grace alone, through faith. But sometimes you come to God out of overwhelming gloom, out of overwhelming dread. That's the fire pod. But other times, through overwhelming comfort, through overwhelming gentleness, and you never impose your experience of faith in God, of faith in Christ, of your salvation on someone else. You never do that. You never mock people who've come to know God differently than you. Than you. you never mock people, look down on people who come to know God in a different manner than yourself. And so we learn from this point that through, through the example of Sarah at least, we have a place. We can have a place, but we need a personal experience. We need a radical change Second point, Sarah's laughter, the laugh. God came to Sarah to renew her laughter. She was 90 years old in a culture that values beauty, in a culture that values fertility, and, and she's, she's no longer desirable, basically. Abraham was probably deeply disappointed because children, that's the one thing that women contributed in her culture in that day. Children were the 401 k Children were the pension. They were the the pension plan. Children were your measure of worth for a woman. Children were your measure of your reputation for the family. They were the blessing. And so here they are in this family. They're childless. They're seeking to have a child. Resorted to having children through Hagar. You're going to see that next week. It's left this failed plan. It's left her distrustful, bitter, lonely, and now she's, in her old age, cynical and empty. She says, she says, after I'm worn out. And what she's saying here, literally what she's saying is, I'm being used up. The language here, it's self-loathing language. She's not just saying, oh, I'm just tired. That's not what she's saying because I'm old. She's saying, I'm worn out like old clothing. I'm just worn through. Self-loathing language to describe herself. She's given up on herself. But God makes her laugh. The loving counselor. Verse 14 repeats the promise. I'm just going to read. He says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Look at the gentleness of God's heart. She laughs at him, but he's so gentle, so comforting. He merely asks, Why did Sarah laugh? He's counseling. Why? Because he knows Sarah's listening. She's listening in. She's eavesdropping. Now, what's the meaning of the laugh? Rainer uh, Maria Rilke, he's a 19th century existentialist philosopher. He's a poet and writer. He's an author. And he wrote a series of short stories. One, uh, at least one of my favorite, is called The Gym Class. It it takes place in in 19th century Austria-Bohemia. It's about this military school, most likely an autobiographical account in some ways, of Rilke himself. And in this story, it shows the horrors of military school for these children, these young boys uh, in 19th century Austria-Bohemia, just before World War I. And uh, you see the terror of this military program. These kids are just treated so harshly and so harshly that one of the characters of the story kills himself in the story in a tragic way. And this is 19th century, pre-World War One Austria-Bohemia. Not, there's no outlet for these children. These children, there's no one here to explain these kind of tragedies to a young boy, and so because they're taught to be hard and they're taught to be disciplined, and as this gym class ends, the children are really much left to deal with the horror, the tragedy that they just saw and they experienced. And one of the boys, as the story winds down to a close, starts to climb, jump all over all over with this other boy's back, and he starts to laugh hysterically, uncontrollably. Why does Sarah laugh? Rilke understands that there are two kinds of laughter. One is this hearty laughter, full of hope. But the other, uh, the other is this, this bitter, cynical, nervous laughter. And, and Sarah laughs because there's no outlet. There's no horizon for her. She's been sold out by her husband in Egypt. She's been separated from her husband in Egypt, serving potentially as a concubine. She's been through battles with kings throughout the, the earlier parts of these chapters. She's, been, she's experienced and seen willful acts of her husband's adultery, and it's left her cynical. It's left her bitter, a life without wonder. This passage is an invitation. God seeks Sarah out to invite her into wonder again, a restoration of her wonder, a sense of wonder. It's what separates a nominal believer, somebody who just comes and hangs with people who believe, who hangs and experiences the experience of people who really believe with somebody who has a vital, active faith as a Christian, as a believer. You know what that looks like? It's like this. This is the hearty, hopeful laughter. Me? This sinner? You think I believe? I would never have believed on my own, but I do. I know it's funny to you. I know it's a joke to you, and it's even funny to me, but I do. That's, that's the cynical laughter on one hand and the hearty hopeful laughter on the other. We're living in a time where everybody believes that everything can be explained. In fact, if it can't be explained, it's a result of the Enlightenment era of our day. If it can't be explained, then it can't be real. It can't be true. And so we're left without wonder. Children, you know, our children, they were just up here. They, they understand what it means to have wonder. Children, um, they, they imitate the things that are too wonderful for them. They emulate the things that are too incredible for them. Batman, Superman, Harry Potter, Mario. Right? That's what the Avengers. Children imitate the things that are most wonderful to them. Churches need to be a place where a sense of wonder is restored. But in our world, it's our pastors, it's our scholars, it's our scientists that suck the wonder of our souls. Well, you know why? Because you know, today, if you see something that awes you, it's the scholars and the skeptics that tell you, they either try to explain it or tell you what's wrong with your thinking. Sarah here laughs. And what is God's counsel? Is anything too hard for the Lord? He's counseling Sarah. Do you see that? He's counseling Sarah. And the the Hebrew word here for hard, he's he's not saying uh, so much, is anything too difficult for the Lord? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is anything too miraculous for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too incredible for the Lord? And at that moment, Sarah realized who she was talking to. Verse 15. And she's afraid, it says. And she lies. She says, you know, uh, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah's afraid and says, no, I, I, I didn't laugh. But look at God's response. He doesn't tear her down. Why? Because she's already torn down. She's already torn. He doesn't tell her what's wrong with her thinking. He's a counselor, ever the counselor. He merely, you know, he says, why did Sarah laugh? She says, oh, I did not laugh. He says, yes, you did laugh. That's what he says. In fact, the promise, you know, the promise, um, it came before the laugh. Verse 14 came before the laugh. He, you know, he, he, he came, there's no judgment, there's no anger. The promise came before the laugh, even before the lie. What does this tell you? You can approach God with your doubts, you can come to God when you're angry, you can come to God in your despondency, in your depression. If you look at passages like Psalm 88 as an example, if you've ever read Psalm 88, there's no verse, there's not a single line in that lengthy psalm of hope. It's a psalm of rejection, a psalm of just utter depression. Why is it in the Bible? Why is this psalm in the Bible? The psalmist writes, you know why? Because it teaches us that faith is directional, not about magnitude. It teaches us that faith is directional. This psalmist, he's praying about rejection, feeling abandoned in and, and his bitterness and his anger, and yet he's still praying to God. That's why we need passages like Psalm 88 in the Bible. Faith is not about magnitude, but about direction. Uh, we often come lying to ourselves, lying to God. We're not always sincere, but yet look at God, talking to Sarah, gentle, humble, faithful he sees our brokenness he sees that she's worn out and he speaks to us and he counsels us he wants us to be honest about our bitterness on one hand and yet at the same time he says why are you laughing he wants us to work out our bitterness he wants to work out our cynicism our skepticism and in times you know sarah bears a son she does bear a son genesis 21 sarah exclaims god has brought me laughter And she names the son Isaac, meaning son of laughter. Transformed laughter. Christianity is not hard because it's too difficult. It's hard because it's actually too easy. It's too good to be true. Isaac is the name of her son of promise. The son of laughter, Sarah's laughter, it started out cynical, bitter, now transformed. She's beholding the son. And she says, I'm laughing. God has renewed her laughter. The cynicism's gone. The bitterness is gone. She can truly laugh heartily again. The first laughter, bitter, cynicism. But with God's promise, the joy was renewed. God encountered Sarah, and her joy was renewed. if you think about it, in Genesis 21, she says, "God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me, but the actual heroes will laugh at me. You know why? Picture this. She, Sarah, you know, before she was bitter. She is now looking at herself. She's picturing herself a 90-year-old woman nursing a baby. How ridiculous is that? How gross is that? And yet Sarah's saying, I can laugh at myself. I can laugh. And everyone who sees this can laugh at me, but I'm laughing out of joy. God has brought me laughter. God really saw Sarah. That's the reason why. God, God, she was questioning her worth at one time, and now after 25 years, she's discovered true worth. True worth in her identity. She's this frail, old, worn-out, cynical woman, and yet it's been renewed. And if the message, if this message, to behold the sun can renew Sarah, it can renew us so much more. So much more. Why? How? What is our hope? This is our last point. How can we experience this kind of renewal? And here's how you do it. This is a trap. Here's how you fall into a trap. People often apply this text, and they'll say, well, here's what you do. You live this story out, by expecting great things from God, I want you to pray with me that we anticipate and expect the impossible. Pray that, and anticipate incredible things from God. That's what you need to say. But that's incredibly flawed logic. Why? Look at Sarah. Look at Sarah. Isaac didn't come because she expected great things from God. She didn't expect anything. She didn't expect anything from God. Her expectations were flawed. She's heard the promise as early as Abraham and yet so flawed, she laughs at God And yet her joy was renewed. Why? When she beheld the son of promise. And just like Sarah was renewed when she beheld her son, in the same way we can be renewed when we behold our son of promise. How do we do that? Sarah, uh, she saw part of the story, only part of it, a portion of the story. But we can plug into the whole story. We can see how the whole story ends, and here's how. Throughout the Bible, there's this concept of the empty womb. In the empty womb, barrenness. And, and barrenness w- was always representative of, of abandonment. You see, barren women, and it represented that they were being abandoned by God. And yet, as readers here now, seeing the whole story unfold, we see that it's a clue to God's active hand. On one hand, it looks like abandonment. And yet, in that, it's, it shows us that nothing short of God's grace to fulfill the promise. So, for instance, it sets the stage then for impossible truths, impossible births. Sarah was barren, and yet she gives birth to Isaac, the son of promise. Isaac marries Rebekah. Rebekah is barren. And then Rebecca gives birth to, um, to Jacob, the son of promise. Jacob marries Leah and Rachel. Rachel is barren. But Rachel eventually gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin. And uh, all the way you go to 1 Samuel, Hannah. Hannah is barren. And then later gives birth to Samuel, the last great judge. That leads to King David, our, our great king. All the way to Luke chapter 1, we have Elizabeth, wife of a priest, barren. And then Elizabeth gives birth to John, otherwise known as John the Baptist. And Elizabeth is the cousin of Mary. And Mary, she wasn't necessarily barren. She was actually worse. She wasn't even trying to have a child, but it sets the stage for impossible births. She was a virgin. But in Luke chapter 1, an angel approaches Mary and says, you will give birth to a child. And Mary asks, how can this be? In other words, this is impossible. How can this be? She's skeptical. She's afraid. She's nervous. But the angel responds in Luke chapter 1, verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. It's the same phrase. The same phrase that God spoke to Sarah. In other words, the conversation that Sarah had with the Lord in this text is the same, very similar to the conversation that Mary has with the angel. Why is that the case? It's because Jesus is the greater son of promise, Jesus is the greater Isaac. Jesus is the greater son of promise, the one whom to all the sons of promise point. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to redeem our broken world. And how does he do that? On the cross, Jesus suffered and died to give us a lasting hope. Sarah was dismissive. Sarah was cynical. Sarah was skeptical. But the presence of God gave her lasting joy. It was was restored because, because she found her worth in beholding the son of promise. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, for the joy set before him. In other words, Jesus had joy. It was set before him. He, He went to the cross because of his joy, but he tasted the bitterness of the cross. He tasted the bitterness of death on the cross. Why? Because of God's absence. Sarah enjoyed a renewed laughter because of God's presence. Jesus tasted the bitterness of death because of God's absence on the cross. On the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've forgotten me. You've abandoned me. In other words, I've lost the joy of God's presence. I'm suffering ultimate joylessness, ultimate loss, ultimate bitterness because of God's absence. In other words, Jesus lost the joy of being near the Father so that we can have joy. We can have the joy of being near the Father. Jesus on the cross became barren, abandoned. If you want to put it another way, God became barren when he lost his son. He suffered. Why? God lost his child so we could become his children. And the deeper that that truth goes into your life, it's going to make you laugh. It's going to make you laugh because that becomes your worth. There becomes your worth. When when the gospel is not the center of your life, you can only laugh at other people. And that laughter at other people is cynical and it's bitter. You're going to look at other people. You're going to compare your lives to them. And you're going to be bitter towards them and cynical. Either because their lives are better than you or because you are better than them. That's how you're going to look at life. But when the truth that Jesus suffered cosmic joylessness for your joy, for your sake, it creates wonder. You can laugh at yourself. You can laugh at how little you trusted God and his promise. When you behold the Son, the wonder is restored. And you know what happens as a result of that? Just a few things. You're going to be able to see your sin. You're going to be able to see your failure. You're going to be able to see your you know the things that you've done wrong. The guilt, and it's not going to destroy you. It's not going to destroy you. You can name it with a laugh. Um, You can have renewed confidence. You can take the rejection of other people. Sarah says, you know, all these other people who hears of this, they're going to laugh at me, but I can laugh too. I can laugh at myself more. There's joy because I know that even through the laughter of other people, it's just a reminder that God sees me God knows me. I am known in Christ. That's joy because you have cosmic worth. You can trust in God's wisdom when your prayers aren't answered. Sarah, 25 years of living. Abraham waiting 25 years in in the promise, on the basis of the call. We can can trust in God's wisdom when our prayers aren't answered. God's never going to give you something without changing you. You can look at society's standards of beauty, of uh, wealth, of fertility, of success. And you can stop protecting those things like they're your children. We do that oftentimes. You can stop protecting those things, you can laugh. They're no longer your means of worth. You can loosen your grip. And you can, as a result, when you start to do that, you start to turn towards the marginalized. We can start to seek others out. We can seek the people out who are outcast, the marginalized. There are many in this city. Metro Presbyterian Church, we want to be a church that seeks out the marginalized, not because we have, we're, we're bought into some call cause, but because we've been radically transformed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we've beheld the Son of Promise. Friends, will you be able to do that this week, to look to our Son of Promise, behold the Son, and that's going to allow us to have an inward laughter of joy. Will you do that this week? As we head into our work, the cynical place. You know, at the end of Jerry Maguire, in the movie Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise says, We live in a cynical world. A cynical world. But it's love, true love, that completes us. Will you be able to behold the sun and see that completed love on the cross for our sake? Will you do that this week? Let's pray.